0: Blog Talk Radio. Chilons. Good evening, and happy Labor Day to all the hunter-chillin' for need just see arms around the wall and things like that. I was so glad that a did with we one more again, for we show Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. This year, the queen quite head from the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation, so glad he hunted chillin' and tuning in one more again to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. This year, ain't anything like that. You know we come together on Monday evenings and things for like gee uplifting to the living legacy and pay ancestral homage. What are we going to do this evening? As we're going to dedicate this year program to all the family with the Alchona and Tejas and Louisiana and other rest of the place, Mako, what a deal with all these flooding and things like that. And one with the Sierra Leone, Nigeria, everything for all of these different things. Rainstorm, Hurricane, Typhoon, all kinds of things are going on around the world. We want to give a moment of silence for strengthening them, what's still there, and for pay homage for them. What a crossover into the realm of the ancestors. ashe. ashe, ashe. We're so glad that hundred children are tuning in to see anything like that. So we want to make sure when I understand me, we're on the wall and thing like that. I want to make sure everyone really, really understands me. So that's why I'm switching so soon to this language so that all my listeners around the world can grasp what I'm saying This is a very, very critical time. Most of you know of the work that we do consistently here in the Gullah Geechee Nation, and I travel around the world as well, helping other world leaders to stand up, to do things in our own nations, in our own communities, to combat and reverse the effects to mitigate the damage that we are doing to Mother Earth such that the climate change dynamics can be reversed if there is a way for all of us to contribute to that process. I would rather be safe than sorry. I'd rather be a participant and be proactive than being reactionary. I say all of that because many people are watching as an ad nauseum the weather channel because this is hurricane season. We have been watching all of the national broadcasts, the international postings and so on about Hurricane Harvey and all the people are dealing with not just because of the hurricane and the rains and the flooding, but because humans decided they would open up levee gates onto other places where other humans live and now people are drowned out, they are flooded out, there is homelessness. And then we've seen what people would call natural disasters, but again, that have resulted in all this harm to humans and to real estate and personal property and remembrance items that families had around the world in Nigeria and Sierra Leone because of people not fully investing in real infrastructure for communities with a long-term vision toward the quality of life of the people. So once again, I'm asking you all to pay close attention. There was a rally that was held at Plantersville here in the Gullah Geechee Nation over the weekend to rally the people together there. A few people's taxes have been paid. We salute the organization that went and paid a couple of people's taxes, but paying just taxes for one or two people is still not going to institutionalize the framework that has to be in place to know that you have leaders that are willing to care about how people's quality of life, qualities of life are going to be affected. And so that has to do with the mindset. And so I appreciate everyone who has contributed financially and your time and your expertise to the Gullah Geechee Nation this year. And helping us to do disaster preparedness, that have gone on to the Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy site at GoFundMe and have contributed money there, because you under and overstand that everything cannot be to react after people have lost things, but to help to contribute so that people won't lose things because we would have the infrastructure in place that could help to protect things and to have resources already in place for our people. So I wanted to say this up front because right now, as the water is still subsiding because of Hurricane Harvey out where many of our people are in Texas, our Black Seminole, Seminole Nation family is out there, we also have a situation where there's a Hurricane Irma that is out in the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on who's saying it. And we definitely are sending our prayers out to our people down near Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and so forth, the Leeward Islands, all of the islands that are down there, Hispaniola, you know, to the families in Dominican Republic, Haiti, and all of those. And definitely we are praying that this storm turns away from land, and that no one suffers anymore, these drownings and mudslides and deaths, all because we as people won't just continue to work together, begin to work together, turn from our wicked ways, stop being selfish, and then contribute and advance to all of us globally having higher qualities of life. I witnessed firsthand the selfishness of people and how they will definitely go ahead and take a deal that what they think is good for them and not so much worry about everybody else. I've seen it over and over again. And so definitely I'm praying that we have more and more people of consciousness that are raising up as the tides rise, that our minds will rise, and we would stand together. Now, many of you who listen to this broadcast know that every Labor Day, I do a Labor Day broadcast, and we focus on the history of what this day means. And so there are other broadcasts that are in our archive of the show. If you follow us on Facebook at Gullah Geechee Nation, you've seen us already post some of the previous blogs from Gullah Geechee Nation.com, wherein you can get a little bit more background and some additional links, not only to those previous broadcasts about the day, but about the history of critical people, involved in the labor movement over time. And so, as always, I take the time today to mention what I mentioned up front because it is a labor of love to continue to do things, to do what we used to hear as I was coming up, uplift the race. And so... As I prepared for this program today, I started thinking about numerous people I've read about that I'm reading about currently, that I'm writing about in my in the book I'm working on currently, and I'm thinking about, wow, there's so much to be able to share. There is a massive, a truly massive amount of information that I would love to share with people, but of course, as an avid reader, I try to encourage people to read as opposed to me reading to them, even with children. I do read to children, but I prefer to give them books as well for them to read and give them opportunities to read along with me and not simply read to them. And so it's very interesting to me that in the years that I have been reading, and that's been quite a long time now, um, that I have read so much material about leaders that were just simply couched as, you know, black leaders or male leaders or leaders of particular things. And now I'm getting to really chronolize the activities of these folks and realize how many of their lives overlapped and how many of them were around at the same period of time doing what they could, taking it as a labor of love to uplift the race. And I pray that my living will not be in in vain and that it will be something that can uplift the race of black people and uplift in particular my group of black folks which are Gully Geechee's that I was born into. And so in so doing, I would be remiss to not point out the groundwork, the foundational elements that went into the mindsets of these individuals that had so much to do with the labors of love to uplift the race, that had so much to do with unionizing the people. So, I'm gonna give a little brief information on Labor Day, and then I want to go into why these particular individuals came to mind to talk about today. And I usually do this because I want to set a context for the broadcast because there are so many people now. Let's straight up be real on the trifling. so honey and Aguirre back and Fierro were the other thing we're seeing all of that. So a lot of folks are not going to go ahead and do the homework and just Google and simply find out the history of Labor Day. So I just want to give you a very short overview of Labor Day and what it is, and I know some newspapers today have come out with the history of Labor Day and so on. But now, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find that they give you some information on Labor Day. The Department of uh, Labor gives you some information about Labor Day. And I think this year I'm going to look at the Department of Labor's information and just share a little bit from what it says, because as you know and you're probably very familiar, at the first Monday in September is usually when Labor Day is. That is when it was established to be. And it was the creation of the labor movement, dedicated to social and economic achievements of American workers, all right? And so they felt that it is a national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and the well-being of the U.S. Now, when you look into the history of who founded Labor Day, they say, well, they're not exactly sure. Who was really the first one to say this needs to be it? There's a man, Peter J. McGuire, who is the General Secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and joiners and a co-founder of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, that was suggested that there is there needs to be a way for us to honor those who have done all of this work, who've done the labor, okay? Now, Many people hold up to that, but they also believe a man named Matthew McGuire, who was a machinist, founded the actual holiday. So in other words, it's like Maguire came up with this. Peter McGuire came with the concept. We ought to do something, okay, but that Matthew forwarded the concept, all right? So then here it is that Matthew, of course, became the secretary of the Local 344 of the International Association of Machinists up in New Jersey and proposed the holiday back in 1882 while he was the secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York. And the first Labor Day holiday was celebrated on Tuesday, September 5, 1882, in New York. All right? And then in 1884, the first Monday in September was selected as the holiday. So ever since 1884, people have celebrated the holiday always on the first Monday of September. Now, what many people don't talk about is the trouble that black labor unions had in coming into existence. And I always give a shout out and a salute to my folks at the ILA, the International Longshoremen's Association, that is all through the Gullah Geechee Nation because we're coastal people. Our longshoremen have truly supported us, especially the ILA that's in Charleston, South Carolina. They have voted to support the Gullah Geechee Nation International Music and Movement Festival more than once. They have contributed to it. Many of them come out and support other activities we do throughout the year. If they ain't working, And so we truly appreciate the folks at the ILA. We've had ILA down in Florida, the Gullah Geechee, the Gullah Connection, as we were on our Gullah Geechee Land and Legacy World Tour. And so we really have a lot of respect for the labor that they put in, and they have a lot of respect for the labor of love that we're doing. And so whenever I start to think about black labor unions, Gullah Geechies engaged in the labor unions. I cannot, I cannot think of it without thinking of A. Philip Randolph. And if you have never heard of A. Philip Randolph, I would like you to, hear some homework that you might like better than me sending you to the books. I'm still sending you to read a book about his life. But you should also look for a film called 10,000 black men named George. 10,000 black men named George. Because A. Philip Randolph led a victory for the Pullman Car Porters, the Association of Sleeping Car Porters, all right? The company was a Pullman company founded by a man named George Pullman, who was an Anglo man, and as a result, the Anglo people who had the disposable income to ride in these Pullman cars and to ride the train and had the luxury and the leisure to be able to travel, they would call the black men on the cars by his first name, George. So they had no respect for the people to find out What their real names were, where they were from, or any details about them, all of them were called George. Well, A. Philip Randolph knew about this. He learned about other aspects of disrespect, like these Pullman car porters. This was a 24-hour job. They could be woken up at all hours of the night in the morning just to do things like bring a newspaper to somebody, come clean their room. They want something else to eat, whatever, and so this was not fair. They did not have any union or anyone to stand up for them. So this was part of a movement and a labor of love that A. Philip Randolph ended up taking on. Now, you'll say, well, wow, what do, what do he have to do with Gullah Well, let's go back in history, as I do just about every year, just so that you're well aware of who he is. A. Philip Randolph, or Asa Philip Randolph, was born on April the 15th, 1889, in a place called Crescent City, Florida. His father was Reverend James William Randolph, who was a tailor and a minister in the AME Church, and that's the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And his mama was a seamstress, Elizabeth Robinson Randolph, all right? Now, although he was born in Crescent City, His major part of his childhood was in the Gullah Geechee Nation in Jacksonville, Florida. So 1891, that is where the family moved to. So he was just a toddler, and he started growing up there. He actually ended up going to school along with his brother James at Cookman Institute in East Jacksonville, which was the only high school in Florida for people of African descent. So a lot of Gullah went to Cookman Institute and graduated from there. A. Philip Randolph excelled in literature, drama, and public speaking, and you know that was critical, as well as the baseball teams, and he sang solos in the choir, but he graduated as a valedictorian in 1907. He then started singing, acting, reading. I know y'all said that When I talk about him, I'm talking talk about myself, right? I know I got you. He started doing all these things, and then he came upon the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, or W.E.B. Du Bois, which was a book that, again, I give you homework, you should read, The Souls of Black Folks. And because of what he read in The Souls of Black Folks, he was inspired to movements for social equality, which, as you all well know, by what else is being broadcast other than just a storm? and what's going on throughout the United States and various other parts of the world. Social equality has not yet come to exist in the United States. And this is why the Gullah Geechee Nation stands still on our human right to self-determination. Now, as Randolph decided, well, this is what he wanted to do because he started realizing that as he kept going out for jobs, these were just manual jobs, these weren't any high-powered office jobs or anything, he still couldn't get those jobs because of his skin color, because of his race. So he decided to take the same message that many others had gotten and go north. He ended up where a lot of Gullah Geechees ended up and are still there today to New York City. He went in 1911, and when he got there, he got a few little odd jobs, but he decided he better go on back to more schooling, and he ended up going to City College. So eventually he ended up marrying his wife, Lucille Campbell Green, and that was around 1913, so about two years after he got up north. And then at that time they had no children, And the wife was working, and she actually had enough money to support living, striving, him fighting for the rights of his people. So he ended up getting engaged in a number of different things, and he started to meet up with people that were part of the industrial workers of the world, this group called the Industrial Workers of the World. So they started to provide him with a lot more knowledge and information about what was going on in that world and what should happen with labor and so on. And so he eventually founded a publication called The Messenger, along with Randolph and Chandler Owen. And 1917, he was part of that publication. It was considered a radical monthly magazine that campaigned a great deal against lynching. Because one of the things that people don't seem to understand is that at that time frame, not only were people having to fight to get jobs, they were literally fighting to keep their breath in their bodies to live without someone coming along claiming they had done something against a white person and generally against a white woman that would now get them hung or lynched. So now we have lynching going on currently in the form of racial profiling by police. Death by cop is the form of lynching now. And we could do another episode another time that goes from the history of the patty rollers into the history of police departments and why that's still going on. But let's stick with this for now. So it's interesting that in 1917, A. Philip Randolph, got involved and started to organize a union of the elevator operators first. And so he got together all of these different black men that would sit on the elevator and take you to the floor. Now, I know you all say, well, that's over now. No, it's not, because when I go to the United Nations, there are a lot of us that still are elevator operators, even when I go to New York City to certain theaters. There are still elevator operators, okay? Someone still has that job. Now, not on the scale of what was going on in 1917, but look at how, how far back that echo was in time that people were helping to elevate people, to lift people literally in what they call in England the lift, okay? That you call an elevator in the U.S. and here in the Gullah Geechee Nation. So here we don't have that many of them in the Color Kitchen Nation. And so here it is that he got together these elevator operators in New York City, and in 1919 he became the president of the National Brotherhood of Workers of America, which was a union which organized amongst people of African descent the shipyard and the dock workers that were in a tidewater region of Virginia. All right, now unlike our ILA. That union dissolved in 1921, just two years later, because of the AFL that I mentioned. The AFL pressured them out of business. They did not want the blacks organizing. They did not want the race being uplifted through coming together. That didn't stop A. Philip Randolph from using the skills he'd already acquired and bringing together our people around their labor and letting them be very clear on what they deserved in exchange for the hours that they were giving to other people. So he helped with the formation of the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters. They elected him the president in 1925. Now, this is the first very serious, very serious effort to get a labor union together at the Pullman Company. And the Pullman Company was a major employer for black men. So a lot of families became upwardly mobile because the men had become Pullman car men, okay, because the railroads were expanding so rapidly at that time. And so the interesting part is how does that then link to other things that this man got involved with. Well, he actually was involved in a lot more. We hold him up all the time for that work he did with the Pullman car porters. And many forget about it because they don't know about the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porter. All right? And 1925, you say, my God, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But as much as things change, they remain the same. And so we have to go back and fetch it, you see. If one ain't the way, they're from one ain't going to go on. Organizing, making sure that there's a group of people pulled together to make sure that you get the benefits of your labor is still a critical issue today. We are still in an area that largely tries to union bust here in the Gullah Gitche Nation. So it's critical for us to realize and recognize people who were raised here in the Gullah Geechee Nation who were visionaries that fought to be leaders of organizing unions, especially if we were out here having all these cookouts on Labor Day because I think people tend to think Labor Day just means it's a day away from me laboring here in the Gullah Geechee Nation and not holding to the true story, the full breadth and depth of the story and what these men went through people were threatening their lives people were getting beaten with clubs so again I encourage you 10,000 black men named George please see that film so here it is when in 1925 Asa Philip Randolph is elected the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. It wasn't overnight that they actually won what they wanted and got a contract with the railroads. No. It took them 1937 from 1925 for that to be done. Talking about as people who call it persistence and stick to itiveness, as some would call it consistency, not giving up because you didn't get today what you figured you ought to have. That is damaging to much of us now in terms of the uplifting of the black race. People want microwave victories. It never happens like that. And so here it is. When he won, that put him up high. And that is why we know that name, A. Philip Randolph. That is why we fight for the National Park Service to have a site for him in Chicago, Illinois, because he deserves it for all the sweat and pain and tears he put in, and every dollar and dime he and his wife put in, even when people tried to destroy them. So here it is, that because of what he was able to do there, there was another group, that formed, called the National Negro Congress. That was to be an umbrella over a whole bunch of other black organizations that started up. And he was supposed to head it, and he did for a while. But then when he thought that it was being run by communists, he resigned in 1940. He then organized the march on Washington movement in 1941 Yes, he organized a march on Washington movement in 1941, and I'm talking about A. Philip Randolph, not Dr. Martin Luther King. And so he organized that march to press against President Franklin D. Roosevelt of the U.S. He wanted him to issue an executive order You've seen a lot of them executive orders on TV nowadays, right? Uh huh. He wanted him to issue an executive order banning discrimination in defense industries. Okay. Now, he thought that that was critical because also a lot of what the defense industries benefited from was, of course, the mechanization, the armaments, the artillery, the ammunition that was formed in factories, a lot of those factories in the Midwest, up north, where many people from the south, some from the Gullah Geechee Nation included in that now, migrated to work in these factories. One very similar to the building that they'd like to put, the A. Philip Randolph Museum in. That's how these buildings looked and were built on our labor working there. So now here it is that he looked at how we could work in all these different industries at times as scabs and other times getting full employment and weren't allowed to be in unions because they were segregated. They didn't allow us to join. So he fought again to end that in 1963. He aimed to obtain government sponsorship of black jobs. His goal was then overshadowed by all the other stuff that now we call the civil rights movement that was going on. But he was still out there fighting. He fought to the end for our folks. And there's so many people that if you put up a photo of him they wouldn't be able to identify who that is. They wouldn't know who he is if they could call his name they might not know what he's known for, okay? But here it is that before the other newer leaders came into the fray, in 1941 he and Bayard Rustin and A.J. Musty proposed this first march on Washington. They wanted to end segregation. They wanted access to defense employment, and they wanted a proposal of the anti-lynching law and of the desegregation of the American armed forces. So for all of you who always salute military people and tell them thank you for your service, please also thank A. Philip Randolph for his service and even getting it to be a situation where people of African descent can go if they so choose to go into the military and then be able to have the same accommodations and activities and benefits afforded to them as anybody else. Had this man not stuck his neck out, that might not be the case. Now, when I say stick his neck out, you got to keep in mind, in 1939, there was a war going on. There was a war going on. People were over here trying to stop Hitler from total annihilation of people that he thought were inferior. Now, Roosevelt had convinced the Americans that, you know, they got to jump in this fight with Britain. They got to get in here. They got to do something. And so once they went in there, they many of the white men left. So these left jobs open. That's what opened up a lot of factory work to our folks. And they were able to also get other jobs now other than just being the Pullman car porters. But now, It is interesting that when he tried to go ahead, of course, he didn't have no pats on the back now um, about getting the labor organized. Because, of course, if you're not organized, people can exploit you. That's always the ultimate benefit of anybody who's fighting against people being organized and having their own leaders. But what he did was he examined what was going on now, and he realized that this defense industry was not benefiting the black people because largely what was happening is they weren't getting trained for the skilled positions to work in the factories. Instead, they kept trying to bring in, as they said, the Negroes to be considered only as janitors. And so this was something that A. Philip Randolph wasn't going to stand or sit for. And so there were statements made such as, we have not had a Negro working in 25 years and do not plan to start now. That was said by Standard Steel, okay? They let the Urban League know that. These things were put in writing, that they were very clear that this quarter million jobs in the defense industry was not going to the black folks, and... Here it was, though, that in the aircraft industry, you had 107,000 workers and only 240 of them were black folk. Now, you know that's a major disparity. You don't have to be a mathematician like I am to just hear those numbers and know it's something wrong with that picture. So you're talking about even in construction where we can look around and almost every Gullah Geechee knows somebody who's a painter, a plaster, bricklayer, You know, folks that work in construction every day now, they weren't giving us those contracts only because we were black. But in 1940, when this war was going on, and they started to say, well, yeah, we'll take black folks into the military, a whole bunch of our men now left home, went to the recruiting stations, and went on and joined up, feeling that they could get better stations in life and be further uplifted if they did that, and if they showed their patriotism to a country that still isn't showing any patriotism or concern about them today. So now here it is that there ended up being a half a million in the Army, a half million folks, but only 4,700 were our people with four units that they called the Negro units. One of them got trained for combat. No People of Africa that set were in the other units at that time, which were u s Marine Corps, the Tank Corps, the Signal Corps, or the Army Air Corps. They were drafting people under quota system, so they put us in segregated camps, and what they would do is the same thing they'd done to our people during the Civil War. They had them digging ditches and building roads, cooking and serving meals and so When any of them came home or came out in the South in uniform, many of them were back to getting subject to being lynched and being hung in their uniform. Well, this wasn't something that was now a fight that Philip Randolph was going to jump out of one fight into the other fight, but he did speak out against these things. But the greatest folks that spoke out against us, Ida B. Wells, And not only did she speak, she wrote. Again, if you don't know who she is, you need to find out about her. So now we find this link between two folk who were from the Gullah Geechee Nation that I would wonder and I would wish that I had a DeLorean to take me back in time right now to talk to them both, to find out did they ever meet face-to-face, and if they did, what was the conversation like? Because here it is that A. Philip Randolph left from Jacksonville, Florida, and went on up north to New York City, but eventually ended up out in Chicago doing his work with these Pullman car porters where some of the main headquarters was, it was traveling back and forth on the rails. Chicago had also become a home to a paper that was where Ida B. Wells and others who were considered militant like A. Philip Randolph could have their criticisms of the government and their criticisms of other quote-unquote Negro leaders that were not speaking up on behalf of our people advancing and the race being uplifted, but instead trying to encourage people to kind of stay in their place and kind of be quiet and they won't maybe get lynched. Well, folks have tried that now. We know that ain't the issue, is it? All right? So now here it is that another person who was in Georgia, born in Georgia on St. Simons Island, on November the 24th, 1868, was there running this paper, The Chicago Defender. And I give you homework again. There's an excellent book called The Defender, How the Legendary Black Newspaper Changed America by Ethan Mikey Ellie. You need to read this book. Here it is that Robert Sextak Abbott, founded, edited, and published the Chicago Defender. For decades, this newspaper was the voice of black folks throughout the U.S. Who helped to get that paper distributed all over the U.S.? The Pullman Porter. This paper was considered defiant. It was considered to be propaganda, the buckler folks Store. They considered it to be something incendiary. So they were trying to destroy this paper. But the Pullman Porters ended up being some folks might say multi-level marketing folk because they started to be able to write subscriptions as they took this paper down south with them as the trains would go and got subscribers all over little towns in the south. So that black folks would know how well they people were faring that had done cops on some other railroad trains that went north, what was going on in the cities, what they should stand up and fight against, how they should stand together. They also got to know about the economic empowerment of people of African descent because the advertisers in the paper were the black businesses. Many black newspapers went out of business because they did not have enough advertisers. They did not have enough subscribers. So here it is that when Flora and Thomas Abbott had their son, Robert, on St. Simons, you got to give a little background on them because Flora was born enslaved in savannah georgia in 1847 her people were portuguese and west african her mother and father her father was jacob butler he was considered to have been the one that purchased his family's freedom ultimately and got them out of bondage now robert's father was considered to have been of evil ancestry again we opened the show in tribute to nigeria where many of our Igbo family here in the Gullah Geechee Nation are from. And somehow, because the Igbo's brought such a high price on the market and such as well, and because of certain skill sets and and traits of the Igbo, many times they were placed as house servants on coastal Georgia. And it appears that this is the line that the abbot's, came down from. So they already had some advancements, one might say. But now they had a situation where a German, that's where that same stack name, and I hope somebody German will call me or leave me a voicemail with the right way to pronounce it because I want to make sure that is how you pronounce it in German. I'm sure it sounds really different. But John H. H. Senstack was a German who arrived in Savannah who hired a lawyer to represent Flora when the abbots tried to take her child. So she ended up being able to keep the child. And so here it is that when you look into the background of Senstack, his father, Herman. Was German, all right, but his mother Tamma was an enslaved African that had been purchased off the auction block and then freed by her husband. So you have all of these different nuances, all of these different tie ins that are going on. And then look at these parallels. You're talking about the background of this man, Robert Abbott, ending up up here. In Chicago, you're talking about A. Philip Randolph speaking out against this war that's going on where? Uh Uh-huh. Do your reading. Do your homework. Look at these connections. Look at these parallels. This is why it's important to read and to keep things in context and chronological order because then you can start to see As much as things change, they remain the same, but then also you can see parallels of history and the dynamics of the connections and the linkages and the collective consciousness of what people fight for and who fights alongside them and how the creator just maps out pathways that have us come together. So it's interesting that when Herman died. The whole issue was that Herman's parents had sent their children over to Germany in 1869 to settle. They, I mean, they were sent to Germany early on to stay there and to be educated. But then when that came back to Savannah and he met Flora and he aided her with a custody battle in 1869, he then decided to stay and they married in 1874. And then Robert Abbott lived with them in Yarmacraw and later in Woodville, all right, which was out on the outskirts of Savannah was Woodville. Yarmacraw, you all know, is right there across the bridge. So now, Sextac Stack was actually a Congregationalist minister and a teacher. And he, you know, also got criticized a lot by the Baptists and so on, but now he ended up, they ended up raising Robert Abbott in that type of an environment, a spiritual environment, very educated environment, and also obviously an environment where people stood up, fought back, and just give up or give in. Because the woman at that time, his mother could have just caved and said, well, you know, these men are not going to let me do things. they, You know, women didn't have rights, really. But she didn't because this was for her child. So they had her child educated at Beach Institute in Savannah. Eventually left from Beach Institute, came to what is an HBCU, a historically black college and university in South Carolina, Claflin which is where our Reverend Willis T. Goodwin, God bless the dead, that was on our Assembly of Representatives for the Gullah Geechee Nation, also has a scholarship for students there. Abbott studied printing then later at Hampton Institute in Hampton, Virginia. He started making his way northward, but not yet crossing the Mason-Dixon line. He graduated from Hampton in 1896. He came back home for a little while. And then eventually, He knew he wasn't going to get jobs again. He was getting discriminated against. Then he decided to go on back to get a law degree. He ended up in Chicago. He got a law degree from Kent College of Law. After he got that degree, he went around trying to find jobs discriminated against because of his race. He wanted to fight for his race. He wanted to uplift his race. and people were trying to hold him down from doing that hold him out from doing that. So, he decided he could take his skills of writing and still use them to benefit the people. And in 1905, he founded the Chicago Defender. So from 1905 till the day people could cheer on the Chicago Defender for the way it has stood up and put out there issues for black people nationally. So the Defender is given a great deal of credit for even the great migration and for those ads not being just about black businesses, but those ads being about getting people out of the South before they got lynched and showing people that they would have a better opportunity and a better life if they came North and started to work in the North and started to get some of these jobs like being Pullman car porters. So here it is that the work of A. Philip Randolph and the work of Robert Abbott start to meld and come together. One has the documentation that can spread the word, and the other one is the one actually physically taking that documentation under duress in some cases down to the people. They're under pressure having these newspapers hidden on these trains and hidden in the jacket pockets and places and getting this newspaper out to folks that these black folks don't want them to read. Paper didn't hide any of the gruesome details of what was going on against the race because they wanted black people to come together to uplift the race. Consistently you will read about the history of Robert Abbott, and realized that he urged black folks to stand up and fight for equality. He even promoted the anti-lynching slogan that, quote, if you must die, take at least one with you, end quote. He didn't allow the terms Negro and colored to be used as undignified Words, he didn't do that. That's why his paper was considered a race paper because they would call our folks and their folks of the race and they would write articles about the race and uplifting the race and positive articles about what was going on with our people. And they challenged what the mainstream press, one might call it today was putting out there about us because a great deal of it was negativity and propaganda and still is. So here it is that the defender in its influence of getting black folks to come north did this following World War One, and they connected the southern blacks with the ones who already made it to north that largely rode the rails with their opponent called porters. They had this entire network of people that were working together, and they probably didn't all really realize the importance of what they were doing at that time to uplift the race. They knew they loved their people. They loved their families and their friends and their fellow church members and the folks they grew up with down the dirt road, and they didn't want them being no strange fruit hanging from nobody's tree, swinging because somebody else didn't respect the color of their skin. And just like them, I love my people and don't appreciate, do not want to hear yet another story of yet that same thing going on, just that folks ain't even buying a piece of rope no more or lighting a fire to burn you. They're just sending people in uniforms to shoot you down. You got people out here marching, talking against people of the black race at this moment and worrying about statues and whether to keep them up or pull them down instead of actually wearing up that have been built in these people's minds and how that's what needs to get pulled down. And what needs to be pulled up are the minds of black people around the world. That we are one set of folks, and we need to uplift our race of folks. We used to say this person was a benefit to your race. I don't hear that anymore. And so here it is. What's the challenge now? We have so many tools at our disposal. We don't have to go through having to have anybody do you know, subversive acts to sneak newspapers under their arm and in their suitcases anymore. We don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about what part of the train you want to sit in. You sit where you want to if you buy the ticket and get on there. You don't have to worry about folks running north. Oh, that's right, because now the northerners are running south. But what mentality are you coming back with? Are you coming back with the mentality of what Robert Abbott had? Are you coming with the mentality of what A. Philip Randolph had? Are you coming back to uplift your own people or have those environments of individualism taught you to exploit everybody because you're more American than you are anything else? Think about it. Answer that question. Before you email me, before you send me any Facebook messages about coming down here to live, ask yourself that question. What's your reason for reversing this great migration? Does it have anything to do with the legacy that these men left behind? Because the reality is this, and we're going to cover that on another broadcast later on, is that great migration northward depleted, much of the Gullah Geechee Nation and other parts of the Black Belt South of the intellectual prowess and physical ability that was needed to maintain the land ownership that was here. And that's why so many hundreds of thousands of acres of property have been lost. That is why the work for those of us who still love the race and still focus on uplifting the race becomes that much more difficult to do because those who've never owned anything find it almost an impossible concept. Well, I tell you what, when you do that homework and you read about A. Philip Randolph's life and you read about the life of Robert Abbott, and you read about the work that we now cheer them on for accomplishing, there's no way that you read that and think that they thought what they were doing was easy or that they didn't ultimately find out that it was just about impossible to do because they didn't always have supporters from their own people either. You had others who were undermining them every step of the way or as soon as they thought that what they were doing or Ida B. Wells was doing was something that people were hearing about, they wanted to come in and try to move them out of the way so they could try to get in and see what they could get out of it. So you need to know about the labor of uplifting the race. It's no light job. It's no easy job. And it's show ain't over. But if we do the lifting together, things seem a lot lighter than we're doing it by yourself. So my hats are off to these two men who went up north and did good, did great. And I'm happy that there is a historical marker in Savannah at the corner of West Bay and Albion Streets in front of Robert Abbott's childhood home. So that people could see it and know that he came from there and went northward. And I pray that he gets his museum in Chicago so that people would know he was there and all that he'd done to spread the word over the railways that we can uplift our race. And so whether I'm on the rails, I'm in a plane, if I'm on a boat, if I'm walking a dirt road, if I'm driving the car on I-95, I'm here to help uplift one another. I pray that all of you will join me in that work. Make sure to email me at G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com. You can find us at com on Facebook at Gullah Geechee on Twitter and Instagram. This year the Queen Quet, head pun the body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. So glad a hundred children done tune in one more get to Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. This your liberty. Have a blessed time. But remember it's still a labor of love when you're trying to uplift the race. And God knows we got to get back to the work right now. Thank you, thank you. Peace and blessings, everybody. Wait,